0: Good morning, church family. It's a joy to welcome you here on this beautiful uh, Sunday morning. I'm excited about being with you in worship. A little tired from VBS week, but doing my best. I'm so glad to see all of you here this morning. Please take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 10 through 18. And um, last week, I read this text, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, as part of my sermon on the Lord's Supper, and um, as, as we've gone through this summer, I've told you, I'm going to just preach sermons this, su- this summer that have been uh, things that I've been wrestling with, things I've been struggling with, things that I hope will be encouraging to you and also challenging to you. And this text has been on my mind now for a couple of weeks. The title of my sermon this morning is The Dangers of False Worship. The Dangers of False Worship. Now, all of us have probably had experiences um, where we've had something or bought something that we later discovered was not real. Or we knew it was real and bought it anyway. We knew it wasn't real and we bought it anyway um, because it allowed us to appear as though we had the real thing. Now I bought, um, I'm a big soccer fan as many of you know, and a few years ago in Guatemala, I went to the market there in town in, uh, in Guatemala City and they brought out a bunch of these soccer jerseys, and one was for Lionel Messi, and it was obviously a fake jersey. But I bought it because I wanted it, and I knew it was fake from the get-go. The reason I bought it is because he charges ten dollars for his jersey. The real thing is over two hundred dollars. So I was happy to have the fake. It was happy, like still, you know, it just wasn't made of as good of quality. But I was happy with it. But sometimes. There are people who buy something and are fooled into thinking that they actually have the real thing. After all, a good replica or a forgery is meant to look real and authentic. Now, I used to watch a show um, years ago called Pawn Stars about the, the pawn shop out in Vegas, and all the time, people would bring in, whether it was a sword or a Rolex or an ancient coin or some contraption, and they would be saying, Man, this thing right here is real. This is a real Stradivarius violin. This is worth a million dollars. I want to pawn it to you. And all, every time the guy would do the same thing, he said, well, I have an expert. Let me call in the expert. And the expert would come in and he would examine it and he would show you what he was looking for. And at the end of it, he would give a ruling on the authenticity of what it was. Sometimes the people were blown away. They're like, I didn't know this was actually worth anything and this turns out to be worth thousands of dollars. And then there would be other times where they would have their Stradivarius violin, and they would go, uh, "This is a forgery. You can buy this You can buy this at New York City for 10 dollars. I'm sorry, you paid 10,000 for it. It's not worth anything." And so um, you, but the point is, the expert would come in and give a ruling. Now, um, in Isaiah chapter one, God is the expert. God is going to be called in and he is going to examine the worship of his people and God is going to give a ruling as to whether it is authentic or whether it's fake. And so that is a huge deal. So, the, so it's critical as we read through this that we allow God the same, the same chance to evaluate us and ask are we, when we come to appear him before worship, do we come with authentic worship before him or are we bringing something that might look real but on the inside we know that it's not and so that is the challenge to us this morning now when we think of worship in our present-day context the dangers of false worship we tend to think of traditional worship versus contemporary worship or liturgical worship versus led by the spirit worship or we think of praise and worship or blended styles we try to describe the type or style of worship we have but what we find in isaiah is that these are not the categories of worship that God cares about at all. God doesn't care. Those aren't his categories. His categories are simply acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. True, authentic worship, false worship. One worship is the worship of God through Christ, found in the gospel, and the other is the worship of the self through self-efforts, without any regard for our own sinfulness and sinfulness need of Jesus. So let's read Isaiah chapter 1 as we break this apart, beginning in verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear, to my te- give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers I will not listen your hands are full of blood wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes cease to do evil learn to do good seek justice correct oppression bring justice to the fatherless plead the widows cause. come now let us reason together says the Lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow though they are red like crimson They shall become like wool. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So I want to break this apart into basically a couple of questions that we want to answer today. So my points are actually questions. So here they are as we look at the dangers of false worship. Here's the first question we have to ask. What does false worship look like? What does false worship look like? Well, let's just kind of walk through the text again, and I'll show you what false worship looks like. First, false worshipers... Will bring the sacrifices that God requires. Those who are false worshipers will bring the sacrifices that God requires. Look in verses 1 and verse 7. They will bring their sacrifices to the right place. If you see there in verses 7 and 8, um, he says, uh, beginning back in, uh, sorry, um, back in verse 1, he says, the the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah and then in verse 7 and 8 he says your country lies desolate your cities are burned with fire and you're in, in your very presence foreigners are devoured in your land it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners here's the point and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard notice in verse 1 in verses 7 and 8 he is talking about Jerusalem this is Zion this is Jerusalem they are bringing their sacrifices to Jerusalem to the appointed place that means they're not taking their sacrifices up to the up to the mountaintops or to the high places or to the other places of worship they're not offering their they're not bringing their offerings to other gods like Baal or Molech or Chemosh or these Old Testament gods where the the people of Israel were always tempted to worship them and bring their offerings to them no they're bringing them to Jerusalem and to the temple so they're bringing what God requires to the right place secondly notice that they even bring the right animals and look at verse 11 he says in verse 11 he says what what to me is this multitude of sacrifices I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams of the fat of well-fed beasts I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats so what are they bringing they're bringing bulls they're bringing lambs rams the clean and proper animals that are described, that are prescribed by the law so this means they're not bringing pigs or camels or animals that are considered unclean they are bringing the right animals to the right place notice also that they even bring the right kind of sacrifices um, look at, at the end of verse 11, he says there, um, he says uh, at the end of verse 11, he says, I do not, he says, and the fat of, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. So what are, they, what are they doing here? The animals are described as fat and well-fed. So they're not bringing the sick and the lame or the deformed, which are the sacrifices that were forbidden in the Old Testament. You couldn't bring a deformed animal or an animal that wasn't on the prescribed list. So all of a sudden, these false worshipers are coming to the right place. They're bringing the right types of animals. They're even bringing the, the animals that are properly fed and nutrition, and, and uh, pro- properly cared for. And then notice also that they bring even more than Moses requires. In verse 11, it says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? They're bringing a multitude of sacrifices. What they're saying in their minds is, well, if Moses prescribes one, God will really be pleased if I bring five. So they are bringing even more than God requires. So that's the first thing I want you to see, that false worshipers will bring the sacrifices that God requires to his his courts. Secondly, false worshipers will appear in God's house. They will come to God's house. Look at verses 12 through 14 there together notice there I'm gonna just kinda pick it apart as we go notice in verse 13 that they come every Sabbath he says bring no more vain offerings incense is an abomination to me new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations so they were there every Sabbath they come um, also to every called assembly look there at the end he says I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly so they're at, every, they're at every meeting of the church or the synagogue or the temple. They're, they come to every called meeting and every special called meeting. And even beyond that, they come to every new moon festival and appointed feast. Look at verse 14. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. So think about this. All this means that these were not absentee or long lost church members. That's not who they are. We're not talking about the people who don't show up. Here in Isaiah, God is saying, these are the people that appear in my courts week by week. Week by week. This means that they didn't send their sacrifices from home. This means they came themselves. They didn't forsake the assembling of themselves together. They came to every event that was offered, every Bible study, every prayer meeting. They observed the instituted times and the prescribed places of worship. So what we've seen already in Isaiah chapter one about false worship is, you'll do everything the law requires of you, and you'll show up every week. Third, notice that false worshipers will exercise devotion. They will exercise devotion. Look at verse 15. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Now here's the point, they participated in praying. Hands out, hands up. From all intents and purposes, these look like really devoted people. They prayed fervently with their hands raised. They're described as praying continuously and without ceasing. But here's the thing. Everything about their participation, everything about their participation led others to believe that they were wholeheartedly devoted to God and worship. Now here's what this means for us today, modern day time, as God evaluates us. Here's what this means. What this means is that you can come to church every Sunday. You can attend every event. Go to every Bible study. You can tithe. You can serve. You can be a Sunday school teacher. You can be a deacon. You can be a pastor. You can be an elder. And yet God can say that everything you do invites his judgment instead of his presence. Now, that should cause us pause to think for a moment. That should make us do a little bit of examination. Here's the point. What makes false worship so deadly and so dangerous is that it looks authentic from the outside. It looks authentic from the outside, just like my messy jersey or that cheap Rolex I picked up somewhere else too. Everything looks real about it, but not on the inside. The inside is not right. We have to understand that true, authentic, acceptable worship is not external only. It is an internal condition of the heart. It's not just about following God's commands. They're following God's commands. bringing the sacrifices to the temple, appearing before God, praying fervently. They're doing everything externally that God requires. The issue is much deeper. That's the point. It's not just about following God's commands. It's having our hearts and lives radically changed from the inside out. Jesus says that it's actually an issue of love. Jesus says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Which means you can keep his commandments and not love him. But you can't love him and not keep his commandments. The motivation of the heart is the root issue. So that's the first question. What does false worship look like? It looks like the real thing. That's the problem, right? You can't distinguish it. I can't distinguish it because I know none of your hearts. I just know that it's something that all of us have to wrestle with personally and have to get to the bottom of. Second question why is false worship hated by god why is false worship hated by god in other words why does god despise what looks like from the outside people simply obeying his commandments and the reason ultimate reason you can write this down the ultimate reason god hates false worship is because it belittles his name and glory it belittles his name and glory. False worship is never about God. It's always about our attempts to manipulate and control him. That's why it, it is an abomination to God. So, God gives, several, gives seven reasons he hates it here in this text. Seven reasons. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I just have to point them out. Seven reasons God hates their false worship. First, God considers their worship just like the, their worship like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that in verse 10? He calls Jerusalem Sodom. He says, why are you doing this, Sodom? Why are you doing this, Gomorrah? Those cities have already been destroyed by God because of, their, because of God's judgment against their sin and rebellion. And God says, I hate your worship because you're acting just like them. Secondly, God t- says he takes no pleasure in the blood of bulls or goats. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. He says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, at the root of this is a theology problem. Now, how do I know that? What's really happening here is they really believe that God was codependent on their sacrifices. That God needed them. That it was a symbiotic relationship. That we feed God sacrifices and then God sends us rains and blesses us and protects us and helps us p- protect our borders. They thought that this was symbiotic. That you, God, we know we need you but you know what else? You also need us. And if we don't bring you your sacrifices you're going to be a little bitty God and you're going to starve to death. Now you're like, Jacob, how do you know that's the case? Well, flip over to Psalm chapter 50. Just flip over to Psalm 50, and I want to show you how we know this was true. Flip over there, Psalm 50. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7. Listen to what God says there to his people in Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. So they're bringing sacrifices. That's not the reason. He says, your burnt offerings are continually before me. That sounds a lot like Isaiah 1, doesn't it? You bring a a bunch of animals. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God says, you actually can't bring me something I don't already own, by the way. Nothing you have to offer me is I, I own it all. And then he says, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Listen to this. This is strange. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to. And this, get down to verse 14. Sorry, that is the next verse, sorry. Um, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. Now listen to this. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now verse 21. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God says that's your problem. You think I'm like you. You think you can manipulate and control me because you bring something to me that I already own and that I do not eat. I own it all. It's all mine. He says, you call upon me and I deliver you. You don't save me. I save you. So God didn't institute the sacrifices for the sake of sacrifices. That was never the point in the Old Testament. In fact, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't save anyone or cause their sins to be forgiven. The whole point was to show the seriousness of sin, that sin brings death, and that in order for, and, and, and the whole point was to show that sin brings death and that every, every sacrifice would demonstrate your need for God to come save you and deliver you. That's what every Old Testament sacrifice was meant to do. It was intended to point them to Jesus who would be the full and final sacrifice for sins. So they had a theology problem. God doesn't need us. Third, God hated it because God did not require his courts to be trampled by hypocrites. Look at verse 12. He says, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? They genuinely thought when they came into the temple they were obedient and that God was pleased. And God says, you're treating as profane the things that are holy. Fourth, God says that their, their offerings were worthless And their incense was an abomination. God hates it for that reason. Look at verses, look at verse 13 again. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Key in on that word. That's the most important word there, vain. It's not that the offering itself was bad, it was like they offered it in a vain way. Um, He says, incense is an abomination to me. Worthless means empty. That's what it means it's empty, deceiving, and false. Abomination means disgusting and wicked. That's what God says about their worship. It's empty, worthless, vain, false, and it's wicked. That is a very tough thing to swallow. And then fifth, God sees their assemblies and festivals in and of themselves as sinful. God says when you gather together, it is actually sinful. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Albert Barnes, the famous commentator, he says this about this verse. He says, their, he says their, festivals and, their festivals and assemblies are not merely evil or tending to evil, but is iniquity itself, which means it would have been better for them to not even show up. You, it would have been less sinful for them to not even come. Now, that is a hard thing to, to say. And then finally, seventh, notice that God sees their guilt. This is why God hates it, because God can see their guilt. Look at verse 15. He says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The point here is that God sees and God knows. God sees beyond the external to the internal. You may fool yourself and deceive yourself, and I can fool myself and deceive myself. I'm quite good at it we can do that but you cannot deceive God he says that their hands are covered with blood the point is we can wash the blood off our hands before others so they can't see the evidence but we can't wash away our guilt before God's holiness only God can cleanse our conscience it's the point is just like when Cain murdered his brother Abel the very blood cried out from the ground for God's judgment So. Now, let's bring this idea of false worship to the New Testament. Let's come to the New Testament. Like, well, Jacob, that's, that's Isaiah. Well, G- we're New Testament people. Some people say those kinds of odd things. Um, listen to what Jesus says about it in, in Matthew chapter 23. Listen to what Jesus says to those who very much so look like those in Isaiah from the outside, very devoted, very, very devoted, very devout. Um, They did everything prescribed by the law. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23, beginning of verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus says you should have tithed those things. You should have done them but you can't do that at the expense of the weightier things and then he says woe to you scribes and pharisees um... uh... he says you sorry um, you ought to have done these without neglecting the others you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel woe to you scribes and pharisees you hypocrites for you clean the outside of the cup and plate but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence you blind pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So also you, you outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the issue, right? Jesus says on the outside, everything looks great. But the issue is God sees our hearts. Jesus sees their hearts, and what he sees is that their hearts were corrupt and their attempts at worship did not bring God's blessing, but God's judgment. So it's a heart problem. It wasn't, hear me, it wasn't the method of God's worship that God despised. It was the manner of their hearts. Now, all of us, including your pastor, have to wrestle with this truth. There are many times in my life, even today, where I will give God my attendance, but I will not give Him my affection. There are many times when I will come and I will give God my presence, but I will not give Him my praise. And that's something that all of us have to wrestle with every day of our lives, that we are not doing something that is actually inviting God's judgment. Here's the point for God's people in Isaiah. Let me go back to Isaiah now. God is saying, I don't want your livestock. I want your lives. God is is saying, I don't want your animals. I want your affection, your heart, and and your love. God doesn't want their incense. He wants their all. And the reason is, is because he's worthy of everything. So here's the application for us today. What this means is that God doesn't just require obedience to rituals. God does give us commandments to come before him and to offer sacrifices of praise to him and to come and bring our everything to him. God does make commandments. He doesn't just require obedience to rituals, though. He requires a heart of love that rejoices in righteousness and mercies. God hates pharisaical worship that's what the bible says one of the false one of the consequences of false worship as i've mentioned already is god's judgment the worst consequence of it all though is that god will not attend a people who dishonor him in their worship so the question is would jesus have the same things to say about us or about me would he say you hypocrites Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. So what's coming out of here is right. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So, and lastly, as I wrap this up, here's the last question we're going to ask. What is God's remedy for false worship? What is God's remedy? So we've understood what it looks like. It looks like the real thing. We've looked at why God hates it, because God is digging down deeper to the issues of our heart. So what is God's remedy for false worship? Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, Wash wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So first things first. God's remedy is repentance. Repentance. That's what this all is a picture of. It is a turning from these things, turning to God. One commentator said this. What is repentance? Repentance is not morbid introspection. It is not self-punishment. True repentance is a privilege given by the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes not only to how costly our sins are, but more searchingly, how evil our sins are. Repentance is not afraid of wholesome self-suspicion because it feels an urgency to be right with God at any cost. Repentance is a power giving us traction for newness of life. It isn't piecemeal or selective, doctoring up this problem or that. So, Paul says that we don't need fleshly repentance, like flesh-wrought repentance, but God-wrought, spirit-enabled, Jesus-exalting repentance. From the Bible, we know that true repentance is a recognition of your sin as God sees it, and then turning from that sin to Jesus. Now, here's the truth, and this this is the truth that's also scary. The truth is, a person can do everything in verses 16 and 17. They can wash themselves, they can seek justice, they can turn from their ways, they can do all of those things the same way they did all of their other false worship. They can do it as a ritual of obedience, but not a matter of the heart in relation, in their, in concerning their relationship to God. You can treat it like a list that will earn you favor with God, but instead it will be used as a list of indictments as evidence that proves your guilt before God. True repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart. You change your thoughts about sin and you change your affections about sin and change them towards Christ. So, repentance is the first remedy. And you apply repentance with the second half of it, which is trusting in Christ. Look at verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Where this happens is when people come to Jesus. This is where forgiveness happens. We need forgiveness that is only found at the cross. It's not found in self-improvement or self-esteem enhancement. It's found in surrendering everything you are and everything you have to Christ. It's giving up on rituals or works or anything else you think will earn God's favor. You can't earn it. You have to give up on anything you think will give you favor before God. And what we've looked at today is usually and rightly called legalism, moralism. That's what's going on in Isaiah It's legalism and moralism to think that you can earn favor with God by doing some ritual and that God would accept it based on external evidence and not an internal change of heart. It's the thought that says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, which is ultimately the worship of self. That's the problem. It's the worship of self. It leads to self-centeredness and judgmentalism towards others, but the gospel is completely different. This is what the gospel says, instead of that, the gospel doesn't say, "I, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. No, the gospel says that I'm already accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. Jesus has already accepted me and forgiven me. So it's not about the self, it's about Jesus, it's about trusting in Jesus. Matthew Henry reminds us with this truth, he says, many will readily part with their sacrifices and they will not be persuaded to part with their sins. Isn't that the problem in Isaiah? They didn't have any problem parting with their sacrifices. Send the ox, send the goats, send the bulls, send the rams. But God says repent and part with your sins. And that becomes an issue of the heart. Now here's the bad news as I close. The bad news is we are all guilty to some degree or another of false worship, aren't we? All of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. The great and glorious news is that there is hope in the gospel. It's a gospel issue. There is freedom in the gospel from religiosity, false piety, and self-promoting legalism. There's freedom in the gospel. There's, there's, There's joy unspeakable and full of glory when we come to a merciful Savior who is all-sufficient and all-satisfying. The power of the Gospel has the power to break sin and leaves no room for pride, but it does leave infinite room for love, grace, joy, and mercy. If you're here and would be guilty before God as an idolater and as a false worshiper, I beg you, repent. Trust in Christ. If you're a Christian who's struggling with false worship and you have a heart that is cold, then you need to ask for revival through repentance. You need to ask God, um, you need to ask, you need to forsake your sin and false worship and embrace the forgiveness and mercy found in Jesus. All of us have committed this, and each week we have a new opportunity to forsake that and say, Jesus, all I have bef- is before you. It's so, like the picture of the Pharisee in the temple and the tax collector in the, center, in the temple. The Pharisee says, God, thank you, I'm not like this man. I do everything the law requires. And the tax collector just beats his chest. and won't even look to heaven. And says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said only one of them went home justified. One was self-righteous and the other was accepting what only God could do, which is offer forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would bless your word and that, Lord, you would go with us now. And, Lord, I ask if there's any in this room who do do not know you that they would come to Jesus. And, Lord, that you would um, show us our need of Christ in every way. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name.